Great to be here. We had a great time at lunch earlier today, and uh, the topic for lunch talk was about generative models and kind of the tension there with human-based art. And another big class of machine learning applications involve what we might call discriminative models, models that are making choices or decisions or grouping things, and so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So uh, yeah, I've got a few introductory exercises for the group, and um, maybe I'll, I'll arrange it so I can so I can break everything, but also so I can uh, stand, I was going to stand a bit to the side, and I'm not sure how I'm going to do that. So uh, here we go. All right, so this is an uh, example that I've drawn from the Bible. And so uh, Jesus says at the end of time, he's going to distinguish, he's going to have the goats on one side and the sheep on the other. And so this amounts to what uh, I'm going to refer to as a classification problem. And so imagine that uh, now you've been given this exercise of distinguishing uh, sheep from the goats. Here's the relevant, uh, this is from the uh, book of Matthew, right? And so here's, uh, there's an interesting set of answers, right? So the, the green ones are telling us where the sheep are, and the uh, red ones, those are the goats. And uh, this bottom one here, this is a poorly formed question, because in fact, that is a goat in the foreground and a background of a herd of sheep. And so what are you going to do there? Well, that's kind of up to you. All right. I've got, got a few exercises for you. Uh, here's, oh, sorry. Uh, also, yeah, so you may, when you're trying to decide, well, what's a sheep and what's a goat, there are some, you can get on the internet and you can find out about how to tell the difference between a sheep and a goat without even necessarily using DNA, just using external uh, traits like the upper lip or the tail or the horns or things like that, right? Uh, and so imagine that instead of having this set of rules, yeah, you've just got a bunch of examples of these are sheep and these are goats, and we train some machine learning model to distinguish the two. And this is routine. This kind of computer vision problem is a homework problem uh, for any kind of uh, introductory uh, neural network type class. Okay, here's another one for you. Uh, this is one that's better performed if you are a computer rather than a human being. And so in this case, the job is to pick out only those images which are images of a panda and not the images of a gibbon. Yeah, a gibbon, one of the great apes. So, all right, well, we're, we're going to get to this a little bit later, but in fact, uh, those are the panda images according to uh, convolutional neural network classifier trained on the ImageNet data set. And these other images have been slightly ruined in such a way as to make the computer conclude that they are gibbons. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Okay, yeah, in fact, we'll talk about this. So uh, what, what they do is, this is from a famous paper by Ian Goodfellow and others. We take the panda, we add a tiny epsilon amount of random noise, but the, it's actually not random. It's been very, very carefully chosen in such a way as to cause the network to push it over the line. And we'll revisit this later on in the talk. This is something called an adversarial example. Okay, uh, yeah, a little more relevant. All right, so now we're gonna outsource our healthcare. And so uh, chest x-ray images, you can imagine farming this out to all the users of Google and um, use them to try to decide whether a given patient has COVID or not based on an x-ray. not saying this is a good idea at all. In fact, I love thinking of bad, awful, ridiculous uses of machine learning. And I didn't even uh, think to include this in the talk, but uh, I actually, I have uh, dual, I have two Twitter accounts. And one of my uh, accounts, which I don't uh, publicize very much, and I only have about 20 followers, it's called Horrific ML Ideas. And uh, I got the moniker ML underscore ideas. And I didn't put this one up there because actually this is something people really do and uh, train networks to do this. In fact, uh, Jeffrey Hinton, uh, one of the godfathers of deep learning in multiple senses of the word, um, had said back in 2016, pretty much, you know, we shouldn't be training radiologists anymore because all the jobs are going to go away in five years uh, because the neural networks are going to do it for us. And in fact, we plenty of radiologists that are not only still having their jobs and are still being trained and subsequently people have identified oh there are certain issues with some of these uh, sorts of data sets where uh, for example maybe the images with uh, COVID were taken at one hospital that has a particular way of formatting its x-ray images in very subtle different ways from other hospitals with non-COVID images that 
undetectable to a human, but that the machine can kind of learn to cheat with. Okay, this is a more general question, and there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer here. I just want you to think about these kind of shapes and put these shapes into groups, right? And um, not everyone's going to do it the same way. So you'll see we've got some shaded and non-shaded. We've got, well, you're going to come up. Imagine that you've got some set of bins. It could be two bins. It could be three bins. It could be more. And you've got to place these in the different bins. So how are you going to do that? Well, we could go around the room and I could uh, ask people what they did. I kind of identified a few common ways, but I imagine that someone will have come up with some way that's different. So um, this is actually taken from, so uh, Google has this great um, uh, division called People and AI Research or PAIR, and they make a lot of really cool demos and explorable sorts of websites. And this is from one about data sets and what the data set says about your worldview. And in this example, they were training a network to distinguish shaded from unshaded. But you could just as easily say, okay, I'm gonna take all the ones that are made of only curved lines and then everything else. So we're gonna make two groups. We're gonna have a binary classifier. Or we could do the same thing with the straight lines. Or we could have three groups. We could have those that are all curved lines or all straight or some that are a mixture of curved and straight. We've got big shapes and small shapes. Did anybody have a different schema for dividing these shapes? I'm really interested. I'm curious. Yeah. Abelian versus non-abelian. Abelian versus non-abelian. Tell us what that means. Oh, uh, you could uh, get, so like if you, let's say, do a uh, uh, flip on like the horizontal axis and uh -huh. then a flip on the vertical <laughs> axis, uh, if you interchange the orders of those for some of the shapes, you may not necessarily get like this. So like A, B doesn't equal B, A. Yeah, so this uh, is about a, whether it's preserved under some kind of symmetry transformation. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, I like it. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Any others? Yes. So there's, there's the highly corrugated uh -huh. shapes. So yes, we've got like this one and, yeah, and so that one. Yeah, but there might be some application for which that's what you really want to uh, key in on. Or we could even do some sort of like anomaly detection algorithm where we say, okay, these shapes, these are all normal shapes, but then the highly corrugated ones, those are abnormal. And so we want to flag those in some way. Absolutely. Yeah. You just do one where it's like most closely fits X function, like a function for a circle or a function for a triangle. Okay. Yeah. Assuming you have some set of, uh, yeah, we might call basis functions for that. Yeah. Most closely like some other kind of thing. Absolutely. And we could go on for quite a while. <laughs> I don't want to. Shapes I like. <laughs> yeah. Why not? And and then then just be really open and honest about it, and don't couch it under some other label. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. So these are what uh, a lot of folks, in, at least in the machine learning community, will call classification problems, where we're talking about grouping things or assigning inputs to categories, or we're asking what kind of thing is this? Like, how many different kinds of things are there? And how do we distinguish one thing, one thing from the other? Where do we draw the line? And this sort of language comes up in everyday conversation. It came up during lunch earlier today when we were talking about drawing the line somewhere between uh, what's real art versus what's just pressing a button and getting an answer coming out. Yeah? So um, we noticed that in machine learning, classification problems dominate over what we call regression problems, which is where we're uh, fitting a curve or fitting some kind of function or shape or score, whereas with classification, we're grouping things or we're making discrete decisions. And whether we're looking at, you know, if you're a student and you're interested in learning about machine learning or you go to a library like PyTorch and you look at their examples, pretty much everything they do uh, sadly, from my perspective as a physicist, uh, it's almost all classification problems. And they assume that that's what you want to do. If you look at papers, if you look at Kaggle competitions, classification is really, really a big deal. And so, well, maybe it's obvious to some people, but it wasn't obvious to me. Why is that the case? And, well, some reasons we might give for that are because uh, it's really it's a form of automating decisions, sort of outsourcing administrative 
actions, right? So bureaucracies and large companies, governments are all based on making some sort of classification and then feeding that into some kind of policy, right? Like classifying, uh, like content moderation, for example. You know, you've made a post and um, rather than paying lots of people a pittance to decide whether it's fake news or toxic or hate speech or something like that, we're gonna train an algorithm that we can scale up and do that for us and then we can moderate our content automatically, right? Um, yeah, gunshot detection. And, they, and all these come with uh, pluses and minuses. Point is, there's a lot of money to be made. And uh, even for things like, I love, uh, I'm a big fan of Silicon Valley, and so this is Jin Yang's famous uh, hot dog or not hot dog app. Uh, I recommend that, uh, that kind of work, right? So we come to see, the more you look into it, uh, classification is really foundational to how society operates. And a lot of people have thought about this over the years. And I could throw out, and I am going to throw out names of smart people throughout history, um, but particularly on the notion of uh, science, right? We've got a lot of different versions of classification. We're going to see some examples from philosophy, sociology, medicine, law, industry, because it's some way of kind of getting a structure to a world, or maybe we might even say a meaning to the world. So there's some kind of link with semantics and thought, um, grouping similar things together. So there's going to be some notion of similarity. And there are different ways of trying to decide how close things are versus how far away they are in some kind of mental or computer representation space. And then drawing boundaries between things. And that can help us to decide, yeah, what are we going to do? Are we going to do this or are we going to do that? And it's something that humans just naturally do. As far back as you go, you see various kinds of classification decisions. Even something as simple as, is this piece of uh, fruit in front of me, is this edible or not edible? It almost seems like you could reduce any form of thought to a classification problem. And that's, that's not what I'm going to try to do, folks, because that would be, that would be kind of intractable. I'm going to try to focus on situations where we're sort of trying to decide what kind of thing something is. But on the computer, uh, or at least with a lot of computer algorithms, uh, these kinds of classifications are very similar. I might even say, uh, to throw out a, a math word, I would even say isomorphic to any other kind of decision we might want to code into the computer. So it's related to our classification. It's related somehow to embodiment and our limitations and our capacity for language. And so I'm going to use classification and categories as essentially interchangeable. There's some debate upon, among various thinkers as to whether these are different things, classifying something versus categorizing something. I'm going to be of the camp that says, no, these are, these are two different words for the same category of stuff. Right? And so I've, uh, that other content is a bit redundant. So we'll move on. Right? So classification shows up as a form of infrastructure and policy and politics and power. And I've got some interesting remarks, but um, I want to note uh, Kate Crawford gave a, a great talk to the Royal Society a few years ago about uh, classification and the politics of power and how, for example, the IBM, uh, the machines from Hollerith were used, the punch cards were used by the Nazis to track uh, different undesirable classes of people. Uh, it's a very fascinating talk. You can find it on YouTube. Classification is the lifeblood of society. And if you're in any field that's kind of represented by one of my emojis, we're seeing that classification is moving in and increasingly being automated. So whereas previously human beings might have been doing these things, we're seeing more and more and more automated versions of this. So the question can sort of come up, well, what are the similarities and differences between when humans do these things and when the machine does it. And machine is kind of a big general sort of category or word because there are a lot of different ways and a lot of different algorithms that can be used. So I'm going to try to stay somewhat general for a little while and then we'll go a little more specific because uh, we don't want to make statements that are you know, only true in certain cases unless we qualify our words. But so how are they similar to and different from the machine-based classifications? What sort of failure modes exist? What sort of unintended consequences might there be? Um, and one of the 
you know, main conversations that's been going on for several years are implications for justice and bias and so forth. Uh, and one of the things that I picked up from great, so this Christian Studies Center, uh, Alistair McGrath at Oxford, he introduced me to this sort of mental move of what does this get you? So if we say, all right, we're going to consider classification, how much of the interesting things that we decide about classification, how much of these things are related to the machine part versus how much are just a natural process of any kind of classification action, whether it's humans or machines? So in order to kind of go into this, one needs to start to get uh, versed in what is uh, human-based classification like. And there's an awful lot. And it's an interdisciplinary sort of inquiry. And this is where I feel um, both humility and intimidation. Because I found that in uh, investigating these things, wherever I put my foot, there are specialists and experts who have devoted their entire life to the subject of classification within a particular field. And so I want to be respectful of those of you in the audience who are domain experts. And uh, I'm not a domain expert anymore in anything. I've become increasingly a generalist as being a function of being at a teaching university. But it's been fascinating. I'll tell you a little bit more about my story. Um, but various fields have very strong traditions of classification, of saying, OK, this is the way that things need to be thought of carefully. And I've noticed that there's not a whole lot of talk back and forth between some of these communities. So I interview people about classification. I interview philosophers and librarians and traveled around the UK talking to lawyers uh, or computational legal theory specialists about what are your views on classification. And it's interesting because sometimes I would name some really groundbreaking milestone work or some really famous author in the field, in one field, and people in another field would have never heard of that person. And it's just like, oh my goodness. And I experienced this myself where in going through various fields, I, I find, oh no, there's another person that's a giant that I now have to learn uh, their body of work. So it's been very interesting. In physics, we don't really do a lot of classification, at least not on my end. I was a classical field theorist. And so I'll tell you a little more about me. Uh, certainly, we, we classify different kinds of particles and uh, forces, and we have our phase transitions, although even these are a little, and we think about something like glass, right? Glass is a solid, right? Uh, yeah, okay, well, it depends on what kind of time scale we're talking about. Glass can definitely be a liquid. So uh, unification is an interesting topic in physics. We could go off on that. So why am I here? How dare I, as a physicist with no background in classification, uh, want to talk to you about this, right? Um, and I'm, I'm going to make an argument that it's kind of because I'm an outsider that I really notice little particularities. So I'll tell you a bit about my background. I was trying to remove myself from the talk, and I realized I can't do that. So my background is computational astrophysicist, did a lot of uh, solving Einstein's equations on uh, computers. So 10 coupled nonlinear partial differential equations, supercomputers generating terabytes a day. This was even back in the day before the internet was really fast. I remember there was a time where uh, it was easier to just put, um, like put a grad student on a plane with a hard drive and fly them across the Atlantic because it would have taken a month to send all the data across the Atlantic. Eventually, they, you know, that got a little bit better, right? But a lot of what I'm doing involves, or at least what I did for many years, was trying to find some kind of function that would match up with a set of discrete data points. So I call that curve fitting. Um, you might call that regression as well, right? Curve fitting is an interesting word because in the language of AI, uh, that can be seen as a pejorative kind of term. So uh, Judea Pearl, who's a Turing Award winner in computer science, who's been a real uh, promoter of causal modeling, uh, said most AI is just curve fitting. And I remember when I saw it, I was like, what do you mean just curve fitting? Like, I, curve fitting is awesome. That's what I want to do. Uh, <laughs> So I'm really interested in questions of like, well, how are we going to fit the curve? And what sort of, you know, what sort of building blocks or basis functions are we going to use when we're doing this? And I ended up at Belmont University. I got hired to teach audio engineers. And so audio is interesting. It's a time series, 
but when people say time series modeling, they mean like stock prices and weather and things. They don't mean like 40,000 samples every second. So time series modeling uh, and audio, we don't really talk to each other a whole lot. And even the people who do language modeling, when they talk about long sequences, long sequences in language modeling amount to, yeah, maybe a second worth of audio. And so that's been an interesting conversation to have. But yeah, I, uh, I got interested in machine learning because I got to see applications of machine learning for audio signal processing and the kind of plug-in effects that you could do with, back then there were these things called, uh, it was non-negative matrix factorization, but it's, it's a rel close relative to neural networks and neural networks have really taken over in areas where we've got unstructured data. So instead of having like a, an Excel spreadsheet, uh, where we've got something that we need to kind of extract the features from. And it turns out that people have had a lot of success with neural networks. I'm not, I'm not saying that's the only way to do it, and there might be people sitting in the audience who are like, you know, all anybody ever talks about these days is neural networks, and they're neglecting these other important areas. I, I get you, but I, we've only got so much time tonight, so I'm going to focus on that, all right? Uh, but definitely, if we're talking about these sort of unstructured data sets, neural networks are often best in class. If you look at kind of the leaderboard of various scores, this ends up being really important. And I found them very interesting because there's a theorem called the Universal Approximation Theorem. And it, you can use a neural network to, uh, to model an arbitrary function, assuming that you've got enough resources to spend on that, which not everyone does. So, uh, but that's not categories. That's not classification. So, um, oh. Right, I added this tonight because someone's told me, Scott, you never tell people enough about kind of what you do and what your background is and whatnot. So I uh, really, we're not gonna talk about me a whole lot, but uh, you can find me if you want. I'm usually, I'm usually DR Scott Hawley. Uh, there's another much more famous Scott Hawley out there who's a geneticist. I'm not him, and he was, I, DR Scott Hawley wasn't taken. So that's how I got that, right? Um, I've taught uh, deep learning, and if you want, you can download code and lessons and things for free. I'm, I'm gonna show you some things from my blog. A lot of what I do, I'm an educator, essentially. So I like teaching to students and explaining things to ordinary folks. And this whole deal with classification is, I sort of thought, well, I, I really like to write a popular level book on classification and teach people about how some of these things work. So. Um, thank you very much to Michael for allowing me to choose my own topic for this talk because uh, choosing to talk on this topic has kind of forced me to you know, get the book project a little more in gear in that regard. So how did I get to classification? Well, um, I was stuck on a regression machine learning problem involving modeling something called a compressor in the world of audio. It's a nonlinear time-dependent modeler that any kind of music production facility, they're all going to run it through compressors. Uh, compressed audio engineers love compressors. They geek out on compressors. Mastering engineers, they do compressors. And I was working on a system that could kind of learn to model any kind of audio effect. But it couldn't do compressors. And that was really bad because it, it didn't matter if you could do distortion pedals or echo or any of these other things. If you couldn't do compressors, nobody was going to be interested. And I was stuck. And so um, around that time, this is 2017, this uh, announcement went out all over campus. Hey, there's this program in Oxford. It's an interdisciplinary program on science and the humanities and science and religion. And you're going to be there for two summers. And you're going to be talking with people from history and philosophy and theology and biology, all these other ologies. That's going to be in Oxford. And my thought was very selfishly, well, Oxford is a world center for machine learning excellence. And if I can get my body physically in the town of Oxford, maybe I can find somebody to help me with my technical compressor problem with this function fitting. I wasn't particularly, well, you had to write a grant proposal. And I didn't have any ideas. Uh, and this was back before AI ethics was all that you hear about or that, you know, so much of a, as a conversation as it is now. It was still a conversation, but it was not as mainstream. And so this was a Christian institute that was running this grant program. And so I said, well, okay, I wrote a grant program out. Well, let's do AI ethics, but let's talk about it from a Christian standpoint and see if there's anything uniquely Christian or just see what areas of common ground. Turns out there's a lot of common ground between Christian views of AI ethics and many sec most secular views of AI ethics. 
but they liked my proposal, and I got to go to Oxford, and uh, spoiler, I never got any help on my compressor problem. <laughs> but while I was there, I'm sitting in these rooms of, you know, of about this many people, and they're having all these discussions. We're talking philosophers and theologians, and they're having, they're talking about what in my mind, so I have, I'm obsessive. I'm obsessive about machine learning. I'm always thinking about machine learning. And I had machine learning on the brain the whole time. And I'm thinking these folks, they're trying, they're doing classification problems. They're thinking about is this good or bad? They're making uh, aesthetic or moral decisions. We were talking about science and religion and um, and one of our mentors of our program, Alistair McGrath, right around that time, he also came out with a book, Territories of Human Reason, Science and Theology in an Age of Multiple Rationalities. And he's looking at these kind of what he might call regions of thought and learning how to kind of distinguish and separate and, and mix them together. And so I started thinking, well, okay, uh, someone somewhere, maybe in Silicon Valley, is going to try to automate some of this stuff. Either through, because there were already precedents like textual analysis, like uh, sentiment uh, modeling, and so forth. And I thought, well, someone's going to try to make a machine that's going to try and address these kind of moral categories and aesthetic decisions, even though that's ridiculous and stupid. You should never do that, but someone's going to do it. And so these were my thoughts back then. All right, I'm not I'm not fully denigrating the idea, but back then I thought, well, this is this is kind of absurd, but let's think about it anyway. And of course, anytime you think of anything with machine learning, either someone has done it or they're going to do it, whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. And so um, I found this was kind of fun. There's a uh, there's a Reddit group. Now this was a joke uh, originally. This uh, this woman, Ellie O'Brien, made a data set from Reddit, and there's a Reddit uh, forum called uh, AITA, which stands for Am I the uh, dot, 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 uh, am I morally culpable in this situation? I'm trying to censor a little bit. Uh, and people will tell their story about, okay, my roommate, you know, I was doing this, and then my roommate got all mad at me, and then I said this, you know, and the question is, am I at fault in this situation or not? And so this person uh, made a data set for which you could train a binary classifier where you feed in a story, and it will tell you whether you are the morally culpable person or not. And this was a joke back then, but uh, you know, I follow these things. And if you get on LinkedIn, oh my gosh, LinkedIn machine learning is, is a treasure trove of bad ideas that students all over the world will build. And I have seen papers where they use Reddit they use exactly the same, but they don't present it as a joke. They present it as, you know, this is serious. We're really doing this. And uh, the Allen Institute for AI uh, in 2021, you may be familiar with Delphi, right? So uh, Allen Institute, very uh, prestigious AI institute out in the Seattle area, founded by uh, Paul Allen of uh, Microsoft, right? And they released this thing, Delphi, as it's kind of an oracle. And you can ask Delphi, you can pose moral questions to it. And you could say, you know, is it is it okay for me to, uh, for example, you know, if I want to abort a baby, but I, I really, really need to, and it's going to inconvenience my life and my parents, and you tell it some story, and you can ask it, you can come up with all kinds of things, and generally Delphi will produce, it's not exactly a binary result, but it'll say, oh yes, this is permissible, or this is not. And they got a lot, of, so this is Mike Cook, he's a game designer, by the way, he works in AI, and he said, this is shocking, and it's not, uh, it's not good responsibility. The response from the Allen Institute was kind of like my thought with the classification, well, we're just kind of looking into this. You know, someone's probably gonna try to do this for reals someday, and so we as researchers, we should sort of try and find out what the potential dangers are, what the issues are in doing something like this. So if you talk to somebody from the Allen Institute, they're not thinking of it as a completely serious kind of endeavor of like, yes, we've solved the problem of moral decision making. They're saying, look, you know, we're, we're looking into it. It's kind of, so AI, uh, well, we'll get to this in a little bit. I think AI is not a real category. Uh, but there's the AI, which is the research field, which is aspirational, and we're always working on things. And then there's AI as the sales pitch that's, you know, here, we're going to help you with your business analytics problem. Okay, so this, I call it the automation conceit, uh, but it's a real thing. So, uh, yeah, I'm a foreigner, 
And I honestly, I used to even think classification wasn't even really science. For example, meteorology, no offense, but the naming different kinds of clouds, that just always struck me as kind of arbitrary. But of course, there's a really, really long tradition, and I'm humbled, uh, of classifying things, naming things, classifying animals, classing all kinds of stuff. Um, but uh, I do have a little bit, and yeah, uh, I'm aware of uh, where I'm at, so I got a McLuhan quote to add in here, and a longer quote. So this is attributed to, this is, this is attributed to many different people. Martin Mull, the comedian from the 80s, is also this attributed to him. I like this quote. This is from Count Tayashu, Tadashu Hayashi. So there was a guy named Arthur Lloyd who wrote a book about Japan called Everyday Japan. It's kind of a travel guide, and he's describing how the Japanese live. And it's kind of like uh, the person who visited America from France. Was it de Tocqueville or Lafayette? The Tocqueville wrote about the Americans and what they're like. And so he's saying, yeah, the fact that you're a, a foreigner can make you maybe more likely to notice little things that other people just kind of take for granted. So that's my only defense in any of this, is that I'm enthusiastic in learning how the rest of the world lives. And I would ask that uh, if I make mistakes in the course of this talk, uh, in stepping on your field of expertise, uh, please feel free to correct me, and then I will not make the mistake again uh, further on. So it's with that that I will continue. So some of the main dynamics that we see over the years, I have a whole timeline that I've made, and I'm sparing you my timeline, but classification throughout the centuries, and some general categories <laughs> of conversation, or dynamics of the conversation we see, are questions of, well, are classifications, are they real in some metaphysical or ontological sense? Or are they merely useful? Are they invented by humans for some particular end or purpose? There's a question of precision or, well, we could even take out the word uh, precision, just language, language in general and categories and the re relationship between words and concepts and categories. Big conversation down through the years. Uh, question of how they're formed, how do people do it? Uh, whether we're talking about infants or children or whether we're talking about people in primitive societies, this is a uh, big area of anthropological and linguistic research. Um, the importance of category labels. Uh, spoiler alert, it, so labels in machine learning kind of mean something different from the kind of category labels that we'll talk about. And I'll get to a slide on this. Uh, but this is an important thing. And then another really big part that I'm particularly interested in that we see in conversations about justice and algorithmic unfairness is a classification then has uh, implications that are their decisions that are then implied by making a classification. And I refer to those as policies. Talk about that a little bit, right? So are classifications real? Well, we can think of classifications as being like something objective about the world or about the universe. And we see this in medicine way back. In fact, some of the earliest notions of classification come from medicine, where we're trying to diagnose something on the basis of a set of traits or presenting symptoms to get at a cause. And so uh, just a really quick timeline. We've got Imhotep back in 3000-ish uh, BC. Uh, Florence Nightingale, I'm jumping around a lot. We've got Florence Nightingale who inspires the international classification of diseases. And then eventually on our televisions, we have House MD, where he's a misanthropic diagnostician, and they're trying to classify things. Now, I'm using the word classify in multiple senses, right? There's some sense in which classify can mean we're going to set up a taxonomy. We're going to, say, build the tree of life. Uh, and then there's also the aspect of assigning a given instance of something to what kind of class do we want to say this is. And I'm going to, for this talk, I'm going to play a little fast and loose in that. I'm usually a little more careful, but I'm just aware that, uh, yeah, there's some dual uses going on there, right? So um, just a few examples over the years, and there are many, many more, and I'm probably omitting your favorite one. Uh, let me know uh, in the discussion, right? Plato had this notion of forms. There are these ontological, metaphysical realities, and what we see in the physical world are just shadows or echoes of the essence of triangleness or dogness or horseness. And actually, we can build something like that into our machine learning model. I'll show you a little bit. It's kind of fun. We don't usually think of it as doing platonic uh, reasoning, but uh, I'll show it to you. A really, really big one. Aristotle had his 10 categories. And oh my gosh, it's been said that Aristotle's 10 categories of being 
are the most discussed or commented on uh, aspect in philosophical dialogues of all time. We have this whole tradition from him onward. People are talking about Aristotle. Of course, a lot of people just took Aristotle as, uh, to beg words as gospel, <laughs> right? And so uh, whether it's natural science, and we know that not all of Aristotle's views on natural science stuck around, although he did definitely contribute to biology. He was one of the earliest people to kind of break down like a tree type classification for, say, for example, mammals. Uh, but the uh, scholastic tradition throughout the medieval period, they're commenting on Aristotle. And it really actually it isn't until kind of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and this kind of sense of liberation from, uh, let's call it, a, a appeal to authority and more of an appeal to reason, let's say, that people start inventing all kinds of different classification systems and coming up with standards for what makes a good classification system. And some of the names there are famous and some of them aren't, and I'm going to skip over them all. Uh, but it's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, so yeah, there's this question of natural kinds. Are there natural essences of things, or is that just something that we're kind of imposing as human beings? And uh, certainly category distinctions, you know, we're still having discussions about these uh, in very modern and political context all the time. Um, and this happens in lots of different areas, right? So chemistry, right? We have these different uh, types of elements and how do we distinguish and what makes them, uh, what makes them one thing or another thing. And I must be honest, the, the classificatory nature of uh, the way that I had been taught chemistry, I was, I was baffled all throughout high school. It wasn't until I learned quantum mechanics as a physicist. And I was like, oh, you mean these things that you're just making me memorize, we can derive these. These are just solutions to, I'm not going to say the word, some, some equation. Uh, and it made a little more sense, right? And then questions objective, like uh, good and evil. Are these objective? Are these real things, right? Right and wrong. If God exists and God has some idea of this is good and bad, then perhaps they are objective or perhaps not. Um, now Kant, I put him kind of as the bridge between real and not real. So I would, so Kant also had his categories, but rather than being categories of being, like Aristotle, they're categories of the understanding. So Kant makes a lot of moves towards the internal uh, subjective state of the human being, but in some sense he's still saying these are real. They're real about us, uh, even if they're not necessarily physical. So I'm kind of making him a bridge between this slide and the next slide. But he had a lot of interesting things to say about how we think about things and the language that Kant uses, where he talks about, he throws out this word that we generally refer to as representations, mental representations of things. In computer science and in neural networks, we use the word representation all the time. In fact, one of the most prestigious conferences in machine learning is ICLR, the International Conference on Learning Representations. And when we say representation in machine learning, we're usually just talking about a bunch of numbers. So uh, interesting stuff. All right. Well, um, oh, yeah. So I just have a couple fun examples of uh, uh, ontologically real categories, right? So uh, fish, right? What is a fish? What is a whale? This is, this, there's obviously an essence of fishness. And it means anything in the water, right? That's what we mean by fish. If it's in the water and it's big, it's a fish. Well, so Aristotle knew that whales were mammals, but he was writing uh, hundreds, I want to get my, many hundreds, what could be thousands of years after, uh, right, the book of Jonah was written and this time where the king of uh, Assyria was living. So there's this interesting story about how the whales eventually were no longer fish, but they were uh, mammals. Uh, there's the question of what do you do with this thing when you find it? Where does this, what is its essence? Is its essence... Uh, is it a bird? Is it a mammal? Is it a marsupial? Is it a reptile? It lays eggs. It's got a beak. So I'm thinking this is some kind of water bird akin to maybe a, a penguin. Posed a lot of interesting questions, right? Okay, um, are classifications merely useful? And the answer is, well, yeah, certainly. There are plenty of instances where this comes up, and it could be that for example, in Florida, let's say if you have an indigenous language that grew up in Florida, you probably don't have very many words for, let's say, snow, right? The classic example of supposedly, and this is kind of apocryphal, but that uh, the Inuit peoples in the north have different kinds of words for different kinds of snow. 
uh, whether that's actually true or not, we can sort of imagine that depending on your need, you may have different words for things. And at lunch earlier today, we kind of remarked on the fact that we use this word art, but there's so many different kinds of art, in particular like corporate art, like you go to Walmart, to, you're like, I want something to put on my wall, versus this cathartic, deep personal experience where you enter in for many months of sort of exploring your feelings. And we use the same word for both of those things. And so that's kind of interesting, right? And this is a conversation that, again, you can see in all kinds of different traditions and in all different time periods, even whether it's explicitly named or not. So we can see it in the, in the gorgeous, in one of the um, Socratic dialogues. Certainly Nietzsche had some interesting things to say on that. And roughly kind of in that time period, we have William James with pragmatism is saying, look, you know, everything is just uh, what you decide as far as what works. Maybe it's an assertion of power. And we've already kind of mentioned that already. Um, for library science, so library science kind of has two different parts to it. There is the organization of all knowledge part, but there's also that we got to put something on the shelf somewhere. And so library science is actually optimized for the purpose of retrieval. And that can be different sometimes from knowledge organization. And talking to librarians, it's interesting because there's also this embodied nature to the library. Of course, everything's moved electronic now. And there's, furthermore, there's an uh, interesting tension between categories and search. And one finds that when search becomes better, like when you can just type whatever you want, categories start to disappear. And there have been measures like this where supposedly nowadays, young people, uh, and by that, let's say, uh, young college students. There's a, there's a chronicle of higher education. A professor is lamenting that his students don't store files in, on their computer in different folders anymore. There's no tree structure. They just put it wherever, and they use the search spotlight thing, right? And it's arguable as to whether that's a generational thing, because my the guy who hired me, who's now retired, my former boss, he, his computer desktop, it was all there as well. But we see this um, in other fields as well. So uh, it also turns out that categories have made a comeback um, with the move to mobile phones. Because it turns out that it's not as easy to type out a search with your thumbs. And so, for example, at Eventbrite, uh, I know the guy who used to be the director of search at Eventbrite, and they were bringing categories back. There's a lot we could say, and I'm probably going over long. Uh, language and classification. So there's, again, I can only sort of uh, scrape the tip of the iceberg. Uh, there's a long tradition of talking about the language of human thought, some kind of algebra of atomistic thought bits that exist in the head and that form some kind of internal uh, representation. There's uh, this notion of a universal language that I didn't really put Chomsky on the list here, uh, but that's a discussion as well. Um, actually, um, in the modern era, Jerry Fodor uh, really has a book called The, L the Language of Thought. And uh, some of you probably grew up in the tradition where that was one of the things that you studied. Uh, there's also this notion of, you know, if we could just use precise enough language, if we could have a system where we're really careful about our words, then we could make propositions that are clear, and that are communicative, and that would get, a, get us out of all of these quandaries that we run into because our language is imprecise. And we see this with Leibniz. He has this uh, massive work about his universal language. Um, and uh, Gottlob Frege um, with this emphasis on rigor. We want to have rigorous language, precision. And Bertrand Russell, really, th this, is, this language and logic are almost identified with one another. So we come up with this formal logic of language so that we can make precise propositions and get clarity. And one of the big influencers that we're going to see, not only for me personally, but for the development of thought on categories, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Um, and a few of the things that we get from Wittgenstein is this sense that some level of precision is uh, not going to be attainable. There's always going to be ambiguity. And we're always going to be playing what he referred to as language games, that words take on their meaning within a particular tradition of usage. And uh, the use implies the meaning and not the other way around. Another big one is the notion of family resemblances. 
And so for Wittgenstein, a family resemblance is something where it's kind of a category, but it doesn't have a clear boundary. And he says, just like members of a family, if you look at their facial features, you'll see some people, like maybe a brother and a sister, will have a similar nose, but uh, a, another sibling might have a different nose, but have similar ears. And for Wittgenstein, there was this notion that no one single uh, element of the set fulfilled all the rules of that set. And he gives another example with the word game. So there are all kinds of different games that one can play. Some of them involve equipment. Some of them involve competition. Some of them involve cooperation. And you can always think of an example of a game where if you were to try to write out a set of rules for this is what's a game, you're going to be frustrated. There's a really fun game that you can get. So occasionally, I've included QR codes. And I won't be offended at all if you want to point your phone up We'll also make these slides available later on. But there's this great game inspired by Wittgenstein called Something Something Soup Something. And the idea is to try to get you operationally to define what you think soup is. And it gives you all kinds of examples of is this soup, is this not soup. And you get to decide whether it's soup or not. And at the very end, based on your choices, it says, oh, OK, so for you, these are the rules for what makes soup. So for example, a bowl full of ice cubes and batteries um, that may not fit your definition of soup, but it might fit someone else's definition of soup, right? And I would submit that artificial intelligence is not a classical category. Artificial intelligence is itself a family resemblance. Trying to define artificial intelligence as anything other than computers doing what we used to think only humans could do, that's that's really that's the, the best definition of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're going to have tons of them. They change over time. Some things that used to be AI are no longer AI. With all the AI hype going around, we've just been told that faculty at UFL have uh, received an email saying, if you publish a paper that is about AI, we'll give you $1,000. So oh my gosh, I expect <laughs> that we will have a proliferation of all kinds of things being, because you can argue that just about anything is AI if it's automated. So linear regression, sure, absolutely. Right, and by the way, this is the, the Wittgenstein family. Uh, really a very, um, how do I say this charitably, um, interesting family. Um, and many of them went on to various forms of uh, psychological difficulties and or suicide. And there was some sense of rigor and rules. I mean, they had fun. They played uh, music as well. But there was a lot of uh, rigidity. And I sort of personally, I speculate. I'm sure there are Wittgenstein scholars either in the room or elsewhere. But I kind of wonder if that rigidity uh, that some of his philosophy and the openness and the vagueness that he's implying are, is kind of a reaction to that. So um, well, how are classifications learned or formed? And this is interesting. In the field of psychology and categories, Eleanor Roche, her work in the 70s is just uh, one of the biggest works. It's just a, it's a landmark. It's a milestone. And as I go around and talk to different people, there are philosophers who specialize in classification and categories who haven't heard of Eleanor Roche. And I'm just kind of like, uh, okay, all right, that's interesting. And then they'll name someone that they regard as foundational that someone else won't heard. So she really, as far as how do human beings categorize things. So for centuries, there's a tradition of humans classifying things, either informally, just deciding what kind of food to do, or very formally coming up with systems and trees and whatnot. But as far as studying how does it happen, how do humans really do it, that psychological study it's absent from the story of intellectual history until we come along to, OK, I mean, Roche, I don't think she would say that she was the first, but she's really the first major uh, figure in this. She's heavily and explicitly influenced by Wittgenstein. And she comes up with a number of things that are uh, quite interesting and foundational. Um, I've used up an awful lot of time talking about humans. Um, this notion of levels, prototypes is a very interesting thing. Um, I'm going to skip on a little ahead just in the interest of time. George Lakoff was uh, formerly very active in the field of linguistics and then kind of had this big break that's sometimes called the language wars with Noam Chomsky and uh, moved on to cognitive science. And he wrote a book called Women, Fire, and Dangerous Things, What Categories Reveal About the Mind. It's a fascinating book. This came out in the 80s. 
and uh, I've highlighted vast parts of this book. And uh, Lakoff goes on and to say, um, we think in metaphors, all of our ways of thinking in categories of metaphors, and this has powerful implications for him to the field of philosophy. And eventually, Lakoff goes on and he becomes a political consultant for the Democratic Party. He's published books on, hey, Democrats, you need to realize that to motivate people, you need to speak in metaphors. And then uh, I'm going to mention one of my Twitter friends, John Paul Minda. He's a uh, psychologist who studies how people think and category formation. He's got a new book that just came out, and uh, so you can check that out. All right, uh, labels are very interesting, and uh, I'm going to skip over that, though. Uh, policies, I think, so it's fascinating to think, you know, once you attach a label or a category to something or someone, that, that implies what's going to happen to them. So if we're saying, all right, this person is now, we're going to call them high risk for criminal risk assessment. That means that they don't get certain freedoms, where if they had just been on the other side of the line, something totally different might have happened. And we see this on uh, forums, right? If we say, okay, well, Nazis, Nazis are bad people. They merit punching. Hey, the thing that you just said, I'm going to say that you sound like a Nazi. And so now I've, I've added you into this category where now you merit punching. And this happens on college campuses. No, you know, it's not, it's not written out like a syllogism in this way, but it's definitely part of our dynamic. And so on the subject of policies and power, Stuart Hall, who's a sociologist from Jamaica, um, was under British rule and experienced a lot of institutionalized racism over the years. He's got a statement that systems of classification are objects of power. They are organs of whatever the power structure is. And he's saying, you know, once, once you've got a classification, all sorts of other things follow from that. And Kate Crawford, in her address to the Royal Society, draws on Stuart Hall. All right, so I've spent a lot of time, in fact, I've spent um, <clears throat> 51 minutes talking about humans' work. And actually, my field is all about the machines. And I really get excited about educating people about how these machine methods work. So I'm going to go a little quickly, uh, and then we're going to open it up to discussion as well. All right? So a few different ways that we can do it. We can sort of make a set of if-then statements, or uh, another way is having some sort of curve-fitting algorithm, which is my favorite. Right? And so a few of the dynamics, so we had our, our key human conversations. With the machines, some of our key dynamics are the following. So we got to put whatever we're categorizing, we got to make numbers out of it somehow. And so some people call that mathematization or mathematicization. We have different ways of doing our classification. We use these words supervised and unsupervised. There are a lot of different algorithms that we can use. There are issues about the boundaries between categories. Certainly, we've talked about a bias a little bit. We'll say a little more in these adversarial examples. So uh, the essence of catness or the essence of dogness, um, this is akin to what we call in the machine learning business a one-hot vector. And a one-hot vector is a binary yes or no. We're going to have three categories, cat, dog, and horse, and we're going to put a zero everywhere else and a one where it's that thing. And you can view these as points in space where this could be a point like over here on the x-axis, and this could be a point over here on the y-axis, and this could be a point on the z-axis. And these are our platonic forms. And then any new, like a, a picture or image, would have some probability of, uh, you know, it's most likely that this is a horse, and more likely this is a dog. And so we can represent our images, or whatever we're interested in, as a point somewhere in this space, which as we get arbitrarily close to one of these uh, ideals, um, we can improve our classifier. In fact, what we tend to do with like a neural network type system, we start off and the system doesn't know anything. So we throw in a bunch of images that maybe, so I've colored these according to what they're really supposed to be with uh, different you know, cats as red and so forth. And starting off with the neural network, it doesn't know. Everything's kind of all over the place. But as you progressively train the system, you see that these points migrate. They've been mapped and they kind of get attracted towards what we might call these poles, right? This is a basic visualization of how this happens. And, uh, this is a cartoon, but uh, if you're interested, I, I wrote a plug-in for FastAI that will do exactly this visualization while your code trains. Uh, so mathematization, um, a lot of times what we'll do then, so I mentioned a vector, a point in space. And so we take something, for example, a word, and a word from our vocabulary. And there are various different ways of saying we're going to represent this word as a point in space. 
A lot of times people use the word embedding. Embedding is just a way of saying getting a, a point into some kind of space. And usually they try to make these spaces semantically relevant so that we have essentially some kind of a thesaurus where nearby points are similar. So like Roger's thesaurus, you can think of that as a one-dimensional embedding where he's got these different categories of thought and they all have numbers that go up to like a thousand and something, right? And in this case, so like this word vocals is, uh, there are all these other kind of musical words, but if we were to go to some other part of the space, they might be all about luggage or uh, any other type of thing we might want. This is uh, another uh, Google pair visualization, by the way. So that's fun. And yeah, even a given word like hot, depending on the words that modify it, uh, that can end up in different areas of space. So this is kind of like, Wittgenstein saying our use is related to our meaning. Um, yeah, this is just kind of fun. Usually our word vectors, they're not just a single number. We don't just use one number. We use lots of different numbers, like a 256 dimensional vector space, so that things that are different don't end up accidentally you know, being stuck right next to each other. Uh, and usually these, so I was using three dimensions. Yeah, usually you can't visualize how many dimensions we're doing. Mention a lot of different methods that one can use, and this is just, there's a package called scikit-learn where you can feed it your different, so these are three different uh, forms of data of two classes of red dots and blue dots in three different types of shapes, and then these different algorithms and how they fit the boundaries. We're just gonna, really quickly, we're gonna look at a few really uh, main sort of examples, uh, nearest neighbors and decision trees and neural networks. And uh, nearest neighbors is, is really, really simple. It's simple to code, it's simple to explain. If you got a bunch of points that are, like this is a supervised problem where we say we know these are our red points and these are our blue points. This could be like healthy mice and unhealthy mice along the axis of, let's say, cholesterol level and body mass index or something like that, whatever they are. Um, but given some new points, so if I put some new point in there, what we do is we just look at what other points are nearby. And we say, okay, whatever it's closest to, we're going to assign this new point to that. Or maybe we'll look at some number, they use the number k. We'll take a vote of the k nearest points. And what do we mean by nearest? Well, that's an interesting question, and there are all kinds of fun things that happen, especially when you get to really, really high dimensional spaces. Uh, some of your intuition about how geometry works uh, starts to fail, and that's super fun. Um, decision tree is all about just breaking up the space. And so this is something I drew with my fingers. We, again, these are it's kind of a crescent shaped. And what we're going to try to do is we're going to try to break up the space. And ideally, and this goes way back to uh, other thinkers, ideally if we can do it in uh, cut things in half, we get the most efficient. But what we want to end up with by breaking the space up is we end up with a, a thing where each box only has one kind of point. And so given some new point, I say, okay, well, what box is it in? Well, if it's in the box with these other blue points, we're going to say it's a blue point. That's a decision tree in an essence. Now, um, what gets used in industry for the most part is we use not just one tree, but we use a whole forest of trees that are trained slightly different, and we have a random forest. Okay, so with neural networks, this is where we get to do curve fitting, and curve fitting is what I know. Curve fitting was how I earned a living for a while. So we fit some function and we have a score. And depending on that score, we have some threshold that's going to tell us whether we're good or bad. And I wrote a really uh, fun kind of educational tool for this. And this is an animation, which I'm not going to show you. But again, I've got another QR code. Uh, I wrote this thing. It was called Naughty by Numbers Classifications at Christmas. And I really recommend it to you because it educates how we get the data. So there's something called the, uh, so Santa, it turns out Santa is going to partner with Amazon. And so together, <laughs> through all kinds of Amazon Echo and um, automated elves on the shelves and warrantless police drone surveillance, they are going to make a social credit score for you called the uh, Santa Amazon Numerical Trustworthiness Assessment, or the Santa score. And based on children in the past who had been deemed naughty or nice, and we know their Santa scores, we can attribute them, given a new person, if we calculate your Santa score, then what we're going to do is we're going to fit some function, and then we'll assign you whether you are naughty or nice based on this. And my lesson, actually, there's a you can read just the ethics aspect of it, or you can click and expand the wall of math, 
And it's, you don't have to do the wall of math, but it's probably the only wall of math for which there's snowflakes falling in the background as you're reading the math. So I commend this to you. It really is just log logistic regression that goes back to the 1800s, but it's a prototype of prototypical neural network where we have some sum of things and then we hit it with some nonlinear function. All right. Um, I'm uh, going to jump ahead a little bit. I lost my, uh, oh good, the stopwatch has stopped. Uh, there is a fun aspect in which data not only tells you things, but you bring something to the data. And how you look at the data and how you choose to fit the data ends up being kind of like a Rorschach test for the data scientist. And there's a really fun um, XKCD comic where it's curve fitting methods and the messages they send. And it's the same data points every time. But here we're saying, uh, look, it's tapering off, right? These could be COVID numbers, right? And oh no, it's growing uncontrollably. And then here's someone who's trying to be really, really careful, but not too crazy. And again, this is kind of a relation to basis functions. And really, neural networks are just one possible choice in all of this. We could use logistic regression. We could use something called radial basis function. I could litter off you know, a whole zoo of different names. So this is kind of fun. And then the fit that we get from this data, so we bring our own experience to the data. We use that experience or bias to fit the data. And then we draw conclusions from our fit to the data. And there's a lot of similarities with our psychological processes. Um, OK, in the interest of time, I'm going to tell you um, a lot of cool stuff, including a lot of the art that we showed earlier today, is based on embedding points in metric spaces and grouping them together. And to help teach, I actually uh, built a, and it's not working, so we'll just keep going. Oh, wait, there it is. Uh, I made myself a JavaScript demo because, yeah, it's not going to work. Uh, because I got sick of seeing the word contrastive loss embeddings all the time and uh, ended up writing myself a uh, system that models how these neural networks work. And the idea is you want to try to get your points to end up in a similar kind of region of space. And there are a host of different algorithms for doing that. But um, rather than mapping to individual points, what we can now do is say given some new point, we can play the nearest neighbors game and figure out what it's like. And so, almost done here. Thank you very much for your time. Um, so, I'm going to go back to slideshow here. And, uh, and I, uh, this is all on my blog, by the way, if you're interested. I'm not trying to hawk my blog, but I'm an educator, and I really do enjoy teaching this kind of stuff and making it clear to people. So, a few caveats, right? Machine learning-derived boundaries, they can't be unique, because you don't have data points for every point in space. And so where your threshold goes is going to cut differently depending on the model that you choose or depending on the initialization. So if you're a person and you're hoping to get, say, a bank loan, uh, you know, whether you're, let's say you're at this point. So according to this model, maybe you're in the red, which let's say that's you get denied the bank loan. But maybe a different bank is using a different model. And in that case, you're in the same spot, but it's, they draw the boundary differently. And so, yay, you get approved for your bank loan, right? So there's a question of the boundary stability. And yesterday was a really big day. And yesterday morning, I found this new paper that big name people were tweeting about. And this was accepted to a major conference. And they're saying, look, we trained the same network two different times. And the boundaries are the same each time. And I'm. I'm kind of like, what? what? Are, you, are you kidding me? You're telling me that these are the same boundaries? So I wrote in, and I just assume that I don't understand what's going on. They, they have a metric, and I strongly suspect, um, okay, I know this is being recorded, but I strongly suspect that their metric is not measuring what they think it's measuring, because their, their pictures are clearly <laughs> showing that these boundaries, they're changing a lot. Or I'm crazy. So tell me if I'm crazy later on. Um, we mentioned adversarial examples, and so um, we mentioned uh, adding some noise to push something over the line. We can also draw something that has a texture, like the texture of the lines of a baseball. And convolutional neural networks are particularly sensitive to texture rather than global structure. And so we have baseballs and paddles. We can uh, actually configure random noise to have the model say, oh, that's a centipede. We can take images, as we mentioned, and, and add what we call an adversarial patch. So we leave the image the same, but we add a little texture. And that texture dominates all the activations of the network. Right? So this is a clear difference between <coughs> human beings and machines. Uh, bias. And this is a major conversation in the world of justice. 
And so this is an example from uh, the Google Pixel phone where it generates categories. And this is a person whose personal photos had been uh, classified as gorillas. Uh, and Google committed that they're going to fix this. This is from so um, this is from a homework problem for anyone. I mean, this made news, but you can still Hugging Face is the name of a major uh, company. They're a great uh, natural language processing company, and they have a, a library called Transformers. And we did this in my class. You give it statements like, "I'm a straight white man," or "I am a gay black Jew," or "I'm a white woman," and you can say, "What is the sentiment score? Is this a positive statement or a negative statement?" And guess what? It turns out that according to this model, which is state of the art, which they, they want to fix, but even today it's saying, oh yeah, 98% positive. And then some of these other ones like, look at this, I am a black woman. This, this ends up being negative with a fairly high confidence rate, right? So this is what we call bias. And there's a lot of work in the world of people trying to eliminate bias or remove it or, or uh, root it out as we can. So that's an interesting sort of unintended type of consequence. We can also look at saliency, and I'm almost to the end now, folks. But the question is, why does a network reach a given conclusion? And so a lot of models were trained on this thing called ImageNet. It's a data set of all kinds of different images. And one of the categories is a fish called a tench. And so it turns out that the tench is a trophy fish, meaning the photos that are on the internet of tenches are not tenches in the wild. They are tenches that have been caught by a human who's posing with the tench. And if you look at the model and look at where the activations are for, that are responsible for producing the conclusion tench, and we color those in yellow, it turns out that the fish is almost completely invisible. And what you see are fingertips and faces. And folks who were here earlier today, I didn't include this in the lunch talk, but if you make VQGAN plus clip, if you make that generated image of a tench, it will generate fingertips in the artwork. <laughs> All right? And so this is fun stuff. So um, one other thing I want to get to, uh, this is another fun thing for my blog, categories and language models. And there are these big language models. There's one called GPT-2. And then there's the new one, GPT-3. And they found that as you add more, uh, as you increase the model size, it can do more stuff. And I'm interested in, can we make the system play categories? And GPT-2 could not. It could not generate categories. It generated nonsense. GPT-3, I trained it off of like maybe five examples. And I would do three of a kind. I would give it three different types of dogs and three different presidents and three different types of trees. I did three just because I like three. I don't know. But um, then, you, and you can read my whole blog post where I'm giving it different types of things. And some of these are hilarious, but most of them are right on. And some of them are quite interesting. Right? So uh, things you wouldn't want a doctor to say to your wife. I was just coming up with anything. Uh, sometimes I was grabbing cards from the categories game, or I have another game called the, the Game of Things. And the Game of Things is a party game that's supposed to be a little raunchy. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I love you, and I'm sorry I love you. Are, uh, <laughs> so really, really interesting that this language model seems to have this capacity for being asked to categorize, even though it was never designed to do that. Okay, thank you very much. That's my final slide. I really invite your questions, your corrections, and your discussion with each other. Thank you so much for your time.